0: Today, we need the correct mix
1: of voices, ambition, and action.
0: The rapidly changing climate is sounding an alarm to the world to step up on adaptation, to address loss and damage, and to act now.
1: Uh, We've signed a climate convention.
0: We've asked others to join us.
1: Most of the observed increase in temperatures is very likely due to the observed increase in anthropogenic GHG concentrations. Our world, my friends stands at a fork in the road.
0: And if we act now, and we act together, we can protect our precious planet.
1: Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast, from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania, and to this special series on COP27, which is underway in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Over the two weeks of COP, I'm holding short conversations with experts from the University of Pennsylvania on a number of key issues that are being discussed at this year's Global Climate Change Conference. In this episode, I'll be talking with Andrew Hoffman, Dean of the University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine, which has been involved in research into the intersections between sustainable agriculture and food security. The issue has also been high on the agenda at this year's COP as climate change presents a growing threat to global food security. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So I wonder if we could start out very generally. Uh, I'd like to ask, what is the interest of a veterinarian and of a veterinary school in the sustainability of the food system?
0: Yeah, that's a very common question, actually, and I think... uh, it isn't necessarily intuitive to the public um, or even uh, the academy. The veterinarians are, um, of course, very much uh, impacted uh, along with the stake, our stakeholders. If you think about it, uh, we are tasked with providing healthcare services for animals, advocating for public health, and of course, um, uh, as stewards of natural resources, including the great biodiversity of, of our planet Earth. So, um, you know, our profession is really, I think, most uh, emblematic of the One Health uh, framework, uh, the inextricable link of the health of animals, humans, and the environment. And we live in that world every, every single day, whether we're in the exam room, uh, we are thinking about the environment of animals when we're, when we're um, discussing uh, disease problems, or if we're on the farm, we're thinking about impacts of climate on um, you know crop lands and livestock, poultry productivity and health, and then of course there's a d- enormous crossover between public health and veterinary medicine related to climate. Climate is driving spillovers of infectious diseases, particularly viruses, um, into uh, from animals into the human population, as uh, you know we all evidenced in the uh, COVID, uh, the coronavirus. Pandemic. And so these um, the climate intersects with with all of these different issues, in particular, um, agriculture, food, health, and biodiversity
1: Now, this is all uh, really an issue at this point today, or more intensely so, because we're at a time when the population is is growing very rapidly, the global population. And simultaneously, uh, the productivity. Some agricultural land is on decline. I mean, this is more on the on the crop side, but I've seen statistics that say that the agricultural land productivity in Africa has actually declined by a third over the past half century. Does that play into to animal health as well or animal uh, um, husbandry?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a, sometimes a forgotten area, but uh, when you look at um, the uh, desertification and abandoned land inventory, uh, in particular in the global South. And as you as you mentioned in Africa, there's some estimates of over a billion acres of abandoned land. Uh, and, and a good part of that relates to uh, the effects of climate change. The process by which uh, indigenous people are no longer able to, to farm those areas is a gradual process. And during that process of, um, uh, many years and many years, many decades, there are a number of challenges to to animal health and are the, uh, the dependability of, of 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 small holding farmers, which are the majority of farmers on earth, um, to to depend on uh, their livestock for you know nutrient dense food. So as the the lands start to dry up, as water waterways start to dry up or the quality of water um, degrades, as soils degrade, as uh, the uh, ability to sustain grasslands or crops, um, it gets more and more challenging for farmers to to stay where they are. So migration is inevitable. Displacement of people is inevitable. And in that transition, animal health can be seriously compromised. There is, of course, the occurrence of of, of direct impacts of heat stress, uh, which needn't be explained, uh, but but there's more nuanced effects of um, poor water quality resulting in diseases, just like we see in humans, diarrheal diseases and diseases that impact the, the overall productivity, output, uh, growth, and even survival of those animals. There's more incursions of infectious diseases that are transmissible. There's more emerging uh, zoonotic diseases that get transmitted from the animals to people, which is also compromising of the of the um, ability to raise ability to use that land and ability to remain um, productive as a farmer in that location. So there's just a lot of intersections between farmers farming and animal health that uh, occur, you know, with uh, challenges to to land use.
1: It's very interesting because when we think, or at least when I think, of infectious disease. I think about it in the human context, but you're saying here that the pressures of climate change are also increasing the incidence of infectious disease among animals.
0: Well, I think one example that's happening, you know, this month is, you know, really substantial flooding in Australia. And the flooding has brought just teams of mosquitoes. Uh, The mosquitoes are vectors for a number of infectious diseases that are transmitted to cattle and then... um, and then the cattle can act as a as a reservoir for those diseases. So I think it's it's really important that we understand that uh, that any sort of major ecosystem challenge can result in in uh, vector borne, food and water borne, airborne, and of course direct animal to animal and animal to human uh, transmission of of diseases, or or even um, poor quality. Reduction in the quality of those those products that people rely on for for nutrition, and as a result, you know we have a lot of people in uh, in hunger um, in those areas. But you know if you just look at that instance with mosquitoes, uh, but you could look at that around the world. Anytime there's flooding, as in Pakistan, um, for example, there are really major impacts not only on the survival of livestock, but on on their health. It could be anything from just their general uh, health in that you know, flooding results in near drowning. And when the animals experience flooding, of course, they have problems with their feet, they have problems with their legs, their skin, and they have problems uh, finding food, and they become dehydrated and so on and so forth. So it's sort of the hidden side of, of extreme weather and climate change um, challenges to the livestock sector that people don't really hear about unless you really kind of look for it.
1: What are some of the specific initiatives at the vet school that are seeking to improve agricultural system sustainability?
0: Yeah, thank you for that question. I think it's really important uh, from the veterinary perspective and and I think holistically if we're going to help countries and we're going to help people farm around the world, we have to first we have to first acknowledge that it's very much context dependent. Um I think it's it's very important that the work that we do is is generally is generalizable, but very much in the context of u s. agriculture. So let me just start with that. So the work that we do um, is is holistic in that we have uh, programs of research and outreach in in the areas of um, animal health focused on, for example, uh, antimicrobial resistance, which is the sort of way they call it the 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 hidden pandemic or the next pandemic is the mm-hmm. transmission of of organisms from foodstuffs to people or between livestock or between people that um, have organisms that are resistant to antibiotics. So antimicrobial resistance and animal human health. Um, we have research importantly and relative to and relevant to to COP twenty seven in, in the mitigation of of enteric methane from ruminants so we have a fairly substantial program funded through the usda and our investigators uh led by dipty pita who is um, a professor of ruminant um microbiology and, and nutrition um is is concentrated on on ways of of raising cattle from very young age that um are through the use of probiotics and other supplements, are low methane producers, and also selecting cattle genetically that are low methane producers and trying to understand all the mechanisms and factors that contribute to enteric methane from a dietary and environmental standpoint. Another area that's very important is in the area of mitigating food waste. We know, you know, Steve Finn at COP talked a lot about food waste all along the demand and supply chain where. There are opportunities to abate food waste. Our research is on how um, uh, dairy cattle can upcycle food waste. This is human fruits and vegetables that are rejected from the hotel, uh, wholesale, and retail markets that can be fed to dairy cattle instead of feeding them, um, you know, rations that are produced from croplands. We can supplement their food and reduce the amount of of crops. And therefore, the land use that goes into producing crops that uh, feed cattle, we can feed things like oranges and um, other uh, products that are thrown out. And as we replace the dry matter in the form of of wasted food, um, we find that the the cattle, of course thrive, and their output of milk is very good. And the other important thing to think about that research that is it that won't actually be that intuitive is that if those fruits and vegetables are thrown out into a landfill, which is where they normally go, there is a much, much greater uh, amount of of methane that's produced from the landfill. Um, If cattle are allowed to, uh, you know, be fed this material, then it gets rapidly in an accelerated way, decayed in the cow's stomach, and... um, it replaces the land use, and it replaces the uh, methane that comes from the landfill. And that generally, our data shows that that largely offsets the amount of enteric methane that cattle are making. So by, by contending with food waste, by up-sale, upcycling food into dairy cattle, we can curb emissions uh, fairly substantially from the dairy industry. We have programs in animal welfare that look at animal welfare and behavior. We have the one of eight UPenn online course uh, masters. And it is entitled the Masters in Animal Welfare and Behavior. And that is, of course, central to our efforts. Um, And then we have a global and regional uh, biosurveillance, uh, disease surveillance systems that are absolutely essential to maintain animal health and productivity in these systems. So those are some examples of, of some of the things that we're doing.
1: You know, I want to jump back. You mentioned uh, a couple minutes ago, Stephen Finn, who also is with the University of Pennsylvania, you mentioned food waste on Thursday, uh, a couple days ago. uh, He was on this podcast talking about food waste. So so whoever may be interested in that issue, please listen to that episode. You also talked a moment ago about um, using probiotics and other ways to reduce the methane emissions. You said enteric emissions. From cows and on the mitigation side, uh, agriculture cows and sheep have been brought up as you know major sources of methane, a major greenhouse gas. To what extent can the methane emissions, if that's the correct word, from no. livestock actually be reduced through changes in diet and, as you also said, uh, I, I guess breeding uh, of cows to to you know have have cows that emit less.
0: Yeah, that, and that is a subject of uh, you know an, an, of investigators around the world. Um, we recently launched the in October the Center for Stewardship Agriculture and Food Security as a as a, a version two of our centers of Animal and Health Productivity, and the, uh, that's a big focus of ours is addressing enteric emissions, enteric emissions uh, from from cattle. That means uh, beef cattle and dairy cattle, largely, but also small ruminants. Um, is is you know somewhere around five and a half six percent of total emissions in the United States um, out of a total of of according to EPA twelve uh, percent of total uh, greenhouse gas emissions for U.S. Um, greenhouse gases um, and and that is apart from land use calculations so it is a substantial amount and so I think it warrants an an important um, program an important focus on that area uh, the um, Enteric emissions can be uh, curbed in a number of different ways, as you can imagine, everything from um the constituents of the diet ranging from the actual um, you know, protein and carbohydrates as, as, as substantial building blocks of 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 a diet to trace minerals, to oils, to other types of supplements that can be used to to boost the caloric or protein intake of of the animal. So so, in other words, like configuring the actual diet in appropriate ratios achieve, can achieve a lower um, uh, methane output. But importantly, I think methane comes from methanogens, and these are certain bacteria in the rumen of the cow, in the fore stomach of the, of the ruminants. They are uh, a critical part of the digestive process, of the early digestive process in the fore stomach of cattle. Um, but they're also uh, not it's not entirely necessary for the cattle to be producing the type of methane that they are are producing unabated. So uh, there are several supplements that are out there. The famous one we've heard about is seaweed, but there's also several other small molecule uh, supplements that are safely administered to adult cattle, both beef cattle and dairy, that will reduce uh, methane production. Anywhere from 30 to 80%. It depends on, this is very context dependent, depends on the type of operation. It depends on uh, the stage of feeding and the age of the animal and the diet they're on and so forth. It depends on if they're high producers or low producers and whether they're on byproduct feeds or not. But yeah, there's great hope that actual supplementation could uh, certainly help us uh, adapt uh, or sorry, mitigate the uh, enteric emissions in a. in a scale and a time frame that's consistent with a 50% reduction in emissions from that sector by 2030. Um, but there's also other ways to do this. One, another way I mentioned probiotics is to start a calf at a young age on probiotics that actually substitute or compete, out-compete um, for adherence and ups, ultimately the residence of methanogenic bacteria in hmm. um, the, the four stomachs. So that's Another strategy is to actually put bacteria in there that outcompete the methanogens. So I think there are different strategies. One is to raise cattle uh, with probiotics. One is to, one is to um, select cattle that are known genetically to um, harbor lower methanogens that are also high producers. And the other is to provide supplements or dietary shifts in the adult. Animals. So there's lots of different strategies being looked at. And let's not forget that they make manure and the manure has to be um, uh, utilized for fertilizer and, and spread out or it has to be digested anaerobically in a system that would um, curb the emissions from manure. And manure produces nitric oxide um, as well as ammonia. So there are lots of efforts in contending with the outputs of Of cattle, the the manure output, um when as as stored as well as as used as fertilizers to reduce uh, the greenhouse gas emissions from that component, which is pretty much the other fifty percent of of emissions from um,
1: cattle now, the food and agriculture system has been a focus of the cop process. What developments have you seen or did you see during your week uh, at COP last week related to, to, to again, the agricultural system? And is there anything that gives you hope that some of the adaptations and mitigations we've been talking about will come to pass through through the COP process?
0: Yes. And I, again, it's very context dependent. But I think you know, the FAO, uh, of course, has the um, uh, Coronivia joint work. On agriculture, and one one might just say that COP 27 was really the first serious ag and food COP. um has, you know, been around for a while, but it's really not been um, developing a draft draft decisions that have advanced um, adaptation, mitigation, and and uh, resilience. Uh, you know, recommendations. Uh, Four countries, and particularly those that are most vulnerable, and so forth. So, I think what happened here was that there was a substantial effort on the part of the FAO um, to have a program focused on agriculture and food security uh, under the UNFCCC, and they it's essentially mainstreamed agriculture in the UN processes through the Cornivia joint work on agriculture. Uh, there were many um, meetings and of the of the Cornivia. Working group, as well as side meetings, and as well as many uh, you know pavilion panels and partnership um, discussions that related to um, ultimately to the the plans that are going to be drafted, uh, the recommendations that are going to de- be drafted as a as a as a decision um, and as an outcome um, as an output, let's say of the COP twenty seven. I, I think for some of them specifically relate to the fact that there's a a, a desperate need for uh, knowledge, um, scaling up knowledge, technology transfer, and of course financing, for um, agriculture and 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 food systems, particularly in more vulnerable nations and and in particular Africa. There was a lot of discussion about. Uh, I think it's 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 fascinating and it's important to recognize that Africa has spoken and Africans have spoken about how they wanna move forward on agriculture. Um, it is not for us to decide in uh, the US to decide on how Africa moves forward on agriculture. It is important that uh, loss and damage financing is discussed in this context. And it is important that the Global North uh, countries, particularly those that have contributed most to, uh, to emissions, Um, participate in loss and and damage financing. So that's, of course, a very important part of the discussion um, around agriculture and food. Uh, And in terms of the actual implementation, uh, there's a lot of discussion on agroecology and agrobiodiversity as a central paradigm around um, how how agriculture is going to transition and how how food um, production will be scaled up. And that involves involves both croplands, as well as the livestock and poultry sectors.
1: Andy, thanks very much for talking.
0: Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for listening to this special episode of the Energy Policy Now podcast with perspectives from COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. This is the final episode in our series from and about COP, but you can continue to tune in to the Energy Policy Now podcast for conversations that run the gamut of energy policy issues. Check out Energy Policy Now on the Climate Center website, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to keep up with research and events from the Climate Center, visit our website. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.